the seat of a rational mind is the realization of who God is. Hello, this is the Adventure Through the Bible podcast. My name is Matt. Joining us today are our friends Karen. Yes. And Tracy. Good morning. And Amy. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Happy Independence Day weekend. That's the weekend we're recording. It's um, always great to be reminded of the freedoms we have and uh, all those things that we are responsible for preserving because they can be taken away very easily, as we've seen in other parts of the world. So I am grateful for it this morning. We've just spent 20 minutes, or I say we, two of the people on the podcast have spent 20 minutes talking about horses, while Tracy and I have listened patiently and actually interestingly. <laughs> uh, horses Kindly. are No, no, no. It's, it's an interesting subject. I don't know anything about them, but uh, it's, fun to, it's fun to listen because it's such a... There's such a lifestyle surrounding it, and it, uh, um, I don't know, it's just a whole different way of thinking, doing. I mean, horses are a lifestyle. They're not just, they're not just pets, and they're not just, uh, I don't know. They seem to be like just a little more than animals to me. I don't know, but um, kind of fun, kind of fun to think about um, all that goes into breeding them and breaking them and riding them and the things that they're able to do and good for and. Uh, just an interesting it's an interesting relationship that human beings have with horses so it's it's, yeah, it's my first little right. mare that I had um, I would go out into the if I looked out into one of our pastures and saw that she was sprawled out on her side enjoying the tall grass I would go out there and literally lay on top of her mm. like I, I was a kid Mm-hmm. And she would be sprawled out flat on her side, which most of the time horses sleep standing up. But every once in a while, she'd lay down and just really get her sprawl on, right? And mm-hmm. I would go out there, and her, her her fur would be all warm from the sun. She was black. And I would just sprawl out on top of her and just lay there. And she wouldn't mm-hmm. she wouldn't get up. She wouldn't get nervous. And we would just have ourselves a little, a little relaxing time in the sunshine. It was fun. So my first horse, I would go out and... Um, sneak into the herd of cows like we would quietly just ride in among them and then wait until the cows like surrounded us because cows are curious but they're real dumb right so I would just let my horse graze and sit there and then when they were really close I would take off at them just start chasing them and I was I must have been a rotten little kid because I thought that was hilarious (laughs) (laughs) that's funny how many of those cows had heart failure because of your fun (laughs) (laughs) it was so much fun that's funny (laughs) that is funny all righty well let's get into our discussion for today we are in the book of daniel and today we're going to be starting with daniel chapter five so let's back up just a bit for context sake Uh, daniel is a captive from judah a captive of babylon taken Along with his friends, as we know them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or uh, their name, their their Hebrew names aren't as important because nobody remembers them anyway. But um, taken specifically, probably for the qualities that that uh, Nebuchadnezzar wanted 
in subjects at the time. They were known to be smart. They were known to be attractive. They were physically appealing um, and had a lot of, of really good qualities. And so that's why they were taken early in that capture of Judah to the kingdom of Babylon and then put into service of Babylon. And so under Nebuchadnezzar, then there's been some fun stuff happening. Uh, we saw that, oh, we saw that Nebuchadnezzar had a had an interesting dream and then built a big statue. And uh, we talked about that over the last couple of uh, episodes. And so if you're interested in those, go back and listen to that stuff. It's it's pretty fascinating stuff. But then we get into chapter five now, and we have had a change in the the rule of Babylon. Because now we are talking about a guy named Belshazzar, who is a successor to Nebuchadnezzar. I don't, I don't know if he's related to Nebuchadnezzar. the The text isn't really isn't super clear on that. Yeah, it, it says he's a son of Nabonidus. I don't know. Do you know something that I don't there, Karen, or did I miss something? Where or? did you get Nabonidus? Um, where did I get Nabonidus? That's a very good question. I so, might have gotten it in a in a note. Yeah, there were there were several places where it refers to Nebuchadnezzar as Belshazzar's father. Now, whether that means direct father or ancestor is unclear. I suppose you could look at historical documents, but considering that Daniel's still around, it's not too far removed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I probably got the Nabonidus thing in a note somewhere, and I don't remember where I saw that. Oh, so yeah, I, it, was in, it was in a note. Son of Nabonidus, last king of Babylon. So... At any rate, he is a successor to Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar is out of the picture at this point. So I have a note that Nabonidus is the actual reigning king of Babylon and that um, he is like living actually in northern Iraq at this time. But but that Belshazzar is like his regent and he's, I believe, his son. So when he says he's so... Belshazzar is technically uh, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, but you know, the word father is used like generations type of thing. Yeah. I I know we noticed that um, during the David years, we noticed that the Bible would refer to somebody as David's son when he very clearly wasn't David's son. He was David's descendant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. it's, It's not, it's not like literal son, but it does mean following in the footsteps of bloodline wise. So I've got this Bible with a timeline in it and it's, it's estimated, you know, the best they can do with scholars working together and comparing the Bible notes with, um, external historical documents and stuff like that. So that timeline has the book of Daniel under Nebuchadnezzar starting in 607 BC. So, and, and Daniel is a young man. So now you fast forward to chapter five, all of a sudden we're talking about Belshazzar and it says 538 BC. Okay. So a number of years have passed. Yeah. Yeah. It's Still been, Daniel's it's been, lifeline, but. Yeah, it's been a bit. I just, I do have a note also that says that the reason this is important, this discussion is the fact that a lot of people have said, look, Nabonidus was the king at that time. And so this biblical story is just a myth about Belshazzar and the writing on the wall and blah, blah, blah. Um, and it wasn't until 1929 that some cuneiform tablets were found that essentially said uh, that Nabonidus was like the primary king and that Belshazzar was a regent. And in, in 1929, Yale University discovered these tablets and were able to figure out that Oh, okay. So they were like co-regents. They reigned together. 
Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. All right. So yeah, it, it, it is interesting stuff how all that goes down. Um, and Daniel has been there for a bit now, but the, the meat of the story here in my minds, when I allow my mind to picture what is happening in the story to me and just let it wash over to me, it is probably one of the most terrifying stories that I, that's in the entire Bible. Just the things that happen here. Uh, if you were, if you were there, it would be super creepy. Um, but uh, we'll let, we'll let that story play out as we go here. So what's happening in the story is that Belshazzar or Belshazzar, I don't know. I've always said Belshazzar. So um, he is throwing what sounds like just a gigantic party. He says a calls it a feast for a thousand of his lords. And you can imagine if he's got a thousand of his lords, there's probably other guests as well. And so this is just a gigantic party that they're having. And it points out that they're drinking wine. Uh, which tells me they're probably pretty happy at this point. And Belshazzar does something rather foolish, and he has he commands that the gold and silver vessels, the cups and whatnot, from the Hebrew temple be brought in, and they're going to drink from them like red solo cups. Uh, just, <laughs> well, am I wrong? No, that's awesome. No, that's exactly the type of attitude he's got going on. <laughs> and so they're they're using this stuff like like it's just party wear from the from the you know from the party store, and they're praising the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone with this stuff. So let's talk about that for a minute. The implications of what's of of that of using this stuff in such a common way how does that sit with you guys so something that came up between calvin and i lately was the fact that he he was you know noticing how much of the old testament is taken up with god saying you know stop worshiping idols stop worshiping idols and if you have the wrong perspective on that you might think that god is you know like narcissistic Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, but in reality what you see happening over and over again is in times when people start worshiping idols, they lose their minds. Like you cannot be, it's like once you realize that God is God, like the Bible says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you don't have that perspective, you don't have real rationality. And that's a thing. Like the Bible makes fun of people who carve something out of wood and then bow down and worship it. And, and so it's like the, the seat of a rational mind is the realization of who God is. So, and I think Belshazzar at this point, he has no clue. And he had the opportunity because his grandpa is Nebuchadnezzar. I'm reminded of the Bible text that says that you cannot serve two masters. And I think that that is the meat of the idea behind have no other gods before me. And Mm -hmm. also the next commandment, which was don't make yourself a graven image of anything because God is aware that we're, um, you know, in the book of Psalms, it says he knows our frame. He knows that we are dust and he is aware of our finite intelligence and our finite awareness. And down here, we are basically unable 
to have multiple priorities. Yeah. We're just not built that way. <laughs> we, we might want to. We want all of the things, but we are not capable of honoring all of the things in their proper order. It's so easy for us to get distracted. And so like what Amy was talking about in, I think it's Jeremiah, where it talks about like Isaiah or Jeremiah, where it says, basically it says, how, how dumb are you? you? You take a log of wood and with it, you carve an image that you're, that you worship. And then with the other half, you make your dinner, you cook your, you know, you use it to make a fire and cook your dinner. Like, are you serious? So to openly ridicule and disrespect the holy articles that were used in God's temple. Now, does that mean that those golden cups and whatever had intrinsic value because they were to be worshipped? No, but they were set aside for use in the temple. And clearly Babylon knew that because they didn't have them out in the cup cupboard, right? Yeah. Like they weren't there next to the red solo cups. They were away. And they were they were even in this foreign country treated. I wouldn't I wouldn't say with respect, but I would say they were treated differently. They were not brought out for regular use. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting. Even this many years after after captivity, they still had the stuff, but they also hadn't integrated it into their own daily use. It was an important thing to say. Like it was a noticeable thing to say, hey, go get those things, right? Mm -hmm. would, and that right there tells you, like they were they were basically being extremely disrespectful to God. And I think it was meant to be disrespectful. I do think that there's an, in the story, there's sort of an essence of, hey guys, we captured this pathetic little country and we still have the vessels of their God. Ha ha, yep. let's go grab them and drink out of them. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That I think that's a big factor in it. When you don't you don't have a respect for God to begin with to the point where you don't think it matters uh, and and then you just disrespect the articles that are involved with worship of him. It may, it just makes me think of a lot of times you hear today people like, "Well, what God should I what God should I worship?" because there's so many of them. Who cares which one you worship? Well, there's there can only be one there. You can't have all of them being uh, coexistent because it, the logic in that just doesn't just doesn't play out. Or at least in my little finite mind, I don't know how you could possibly believe that they all exist, especially since the one we worship says that he's the only one, which just says that all truths can't be true because <laughs> because uh, because, uh, it, you know, the logic is, isn't there. And so. When when you lose respect for it in the first place and then and then try to misuse things that are are important in in the worship of that of the real God, uh, it uh, it plays out in in bad ways. Yeah, to what you're saying, I think it depends on your definition of God. And if you have a clear idea that God is this self-existent being that causes all other things to exist. You can't have like this idea of, oh, well, all the gods are equal, blah, blah, blah. Um, 
like maybe if you had a very narrow view of what a god was and you just meant something with powers beyond human powers mm. you might you might think that way but if you have the biblical definition of god is the one who mm -hmm. exists on his own i mean he calls himself the i am i exist on my own and i cause all other things to have their existence um then you start thinking a little bit differently very much so. That's that's pretty much exactly what I was going to say. Is that if you if you think of a god as something supernatural, well then yeah, there are there are multiple gods you could choose from. If you think of God as the God of gods, the Lord of all lords, then that's different. It's a very different working definition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think maybe that is a piece, and this is just my speculation, but I think that's maybe a piece of what's happening here is that Belshazzar just hasn't, he hasn't defined maybe in his mind what a god is or what god is. And surely being in the position he is, he's he knows the history of his grandfather uh, and knows some of those stories, but um, just hasn't gained the respect for it that it deserves. Well, just real quickly, I thought it was interesting that you mentioned how creepy this story is. I, honestly, I've never really thought of it that way. And maybe it's just familiarity, but but it is creepy to think of a disembodied hand suddenly writing something on the wall. And it says that the king's knees knocked together like he's terrified. You know, I'm, I was thinking about that the same way, too. And in my notes, I have that, you know, maybe at some point you just become jaded to the fact that in their culture, they had so many gods, and he never had his aha moment like Nebuchadnezzar had. Mm -hmm. He So he really didn't know, per se. It was just a story to him. And I think that's kind of what makes this so odd and, and scary in itself, is that this was his aha moment. And, you know, not to give it away, but led to his downfall. Yeah, It was the end for him. Right. He didn't, you know, he didn't get a chance to pull somebody out of a fiery furnace and go, you know what? There is a God of gods. Right. Um, you know, he just got this hand on the wall and the writing on the wall. And that was it. The queen says this. She 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 basically articulates the local beliefs pretty well. So, you know, the hand appears, it writes the words. The king is terrified knees are knocking and he summons all of his enchanters astrologers and diviners and says whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple see I, and i'm a redhead honestly i look terrible in purple so that would have been my cue to bail at that point <laughs> um, and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom okay so of course, none of the one of none of the kingdom's wise men can do it, but the queen steps up and says, "Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him." Right. Mm -hmm. So he's acknowledged as special because he has the spirit of the plural holy gods in him, not because he serves the one true God. So in this nation that has a completely different belief structure and multiple gods, his call to being different is that the spirit of the gods is in him. And I, and I remember Nebuchadnezzar saying that to him about the, about the, um, 
about the, you know, when he could interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream about the image, oh, surely this man has the spirit of God in him. Just in case our listeners haven't read the story before, we've kind of, we sort of skimmed over the scary part here, where in the middle of this party, where they're being so disrespectful, this this hand shows up and begins writing on the wall. Just a disembodied hand, just on the wall, begins writing these words, and nobody can tell what the words are. Uh, it sounds to me like it's a language that nobody there spoke, and and um, it's like a ghost story. I mean, it's like a creepy, weird thing happening. I surely it uh, it disrupted the whole party. I don't know. I think it would have terrified me, but uh, and it certainly terrified them. So anyway, that's the that's the context here. So on verse seven, where it says. Uh, a chain of gold will shall be put about his neck, the person who can interpret this, and he shall be third ruler in the kingdom. That goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning. Um, so who would be second then? Well, as it turns out, Nabonidus is first in the kingdom. Belshazzar wow. is second, and he's offering whoever can interpret this path or you know this writing the third place in the kingdom. That's okay. That's that's really good context there. That's fantastic. That's, that's excellent. Well, so yes, Daniel gets called in because the queen, the queen reminds Belshazzar or tells Belshazzar either way. I don't know, but uh, suggests calling Daniel in because he has this history of of knowing how to do this and, and has a has a reputation. And they, you know, offers Daniel these gifts, and Daniel basically says, "Now keep your gifts. I'll read it for you." And he he conti- he goes on to just to give the little bit of history there. He says that God gave Nebuchadnezzar his kingdom. But when Nebuchadnezzar had gotten proud, everything had been taken from him until he was humbled. So, uh, like we said before, Belshazzar surely knew the history of Nebuchadnezzar and is being reminded of it here. And then Daniel says, you, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. And so it's like we're talking here. He is being very flippant, very disrespectful to the culture of the Hebrew people that he's taken uh, just because he's in a position of power over them is not licensed to treat them poorly. I've always actually been really kind of impressed with the way that the Babylonians treat, at least, I don't know, this is my perception of it. It seems like even though he, uh, they would uproot people and move them around and such, there didn't seem to be like spite in it. There didn't seem to be, any real desire to belittle them. It was, it was just by picking them up, moving them around. It was to, it was a sense of maybe disorientation, get them into a place where they're not as familiar, but still allowing them a certain autonomy, a certain ability to maintain a culture uh, and and a a little dignity. And Belshazzar right here, he's just showing he doesn't care about that at all. Yeah, that's interesting. I I had never thought of this being connected to his view of the Israelites that he had captured at all. Um, I guess I read it more simply than that. Daniel's, you know, Daniel says to him, you know, your father, Nebuchadnezzar, Mm -hmm. recognized God as above him. He recognized his place as finite, Mm -hmm. but only eventually. (laughs) Yeah. First, his heart became hard with pride, and so God deposed him from his throne and sent him out to the fields 
to live like an animal for years to show him who is actually in charge. And then and then he became humble. And even though you know this story, you have not become humble. You have not recognized your place under the God of heaven. Mm-hmm. I didn't make any association with the with the captives. That's interesting. Never would have thought of that. Well, it's sort of my take, but if he doesn't represent, if he doesn't humble himself to their God, I mean, I think it's also the people maybe, but. And I look at it too, is we don't, we didn't see the whole picture of, you know, the captivity, the bondage, how everyone was treated. Cause remember, you know, Daniel was, and, and his friends were the first ones to come over. So they were the elite. Yeah. They were, they were used to intermingle with the Babylonians to learn their culture, to, to, I like to think to be almost like a trophy, you know, look what, look what the, you know, the place we conquered, look how we've integrated them into our society, but still making them eunuchs and letting them know that they're still captives. But we didn't know about the day to day, the average person, what did their day look like? You yeah. know, how were they treated? You know, and a lot of times the elite and the, the royals were treated, you know, a little bit better. You know, mm-hmm. being able to eat off the king's table, that kind of thing. So, you know, we just don't have that full picture. Right. No, you're right. Uh, I just, I don't know. I just never got the impression that they were treated badly. Not, I mean, you know, we get that picture of of slavery in Egypt. And I guess there's probably some servitude to uh, Babylon. But I, I don't know. It just never felt the same to me. But I don't know. I'm no historian. I'm reading a book called Live Not By Lies, and it's so fascinating because it's about, it's interviews with people who lived through totalitarian dictatorships, and he's interviewing all these people, and basically the gist of the book is telling people, you know, it's coming here too, and one of the things they talk about is that, you know, previously in history, other people have been captured, but they were allowed to think their own thoughts Whereas in the last 150 years, we've seen all these totalitarian regimes arise and totalitarianism involves the idea that it will control even your thoughts. You're not allowed to think certain things. And that's such a difference between a captivity of a people who is still able to, in some respects, maintain their culture. And and so it's just kind of interesting and a little bit related to what you were saying. Mm -hmm. Well, that is interesting. It is interesting because maybe there was the beginnings of a of an attempt to make them change their minds because you think of 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 uh, Nebuchadnezzar with with the statue and wanting everybody to bow down and worship that thing. Uh, there's a little bit of a story that we'll get to here in a little bit of people trying to, you know, they have different motivations, but trying to um, trying to change patterns of of worship and thought but it just seems like it didn't stick really with with babylon so much but yeah i don't know so so i was a, i was able to look it up right now and it actually says in jeremiah 29 4 through 11 that when they were carried away they were able to build houses they were able to dwell in them they were able to plant gardens and eat their fruit take wives have sons and daughters you know, so in a way, yeah, you're you're right. They were they were treated decently, I guess. You know, I'm kind of skimming through it right now, but it it doesn't say that they were they were treated poorly for the 70 years that they were held in captivity. 
Well, remember what Ezekiel told them at the beginning. I think I think it was Ezekiel. Maybe it was. Maybe it goes back further than that. Maybe it was Jeremiah. But he, he said, like, don't avoid this. You're going to go into captivity in Babylon for only 70 years, and then you're going to come back here. Yeah. Like, they were they were told at the outset, you know, you're not going to be demolished as a nation. This is not the end of you. Don't flee to Egypt to escape this. This is a spanking from God. Mm-hmm. You deserve this, but you're going to come back. He even told them how long it was going to last. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so my perception of it is that Babylon's conquering of the area, it wasn't so much to wipe anybody out. It wasn't to completely dismantle their culture. It wasn't for any of that sort of thing. I think that it seems to me like maybe they were more interested in land than they were in trying to wipe anybody out. And yeah, I would say land, power, and revenue, honestly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so, now. yeah, and so they would pick up the people, take them to a different place. This is where you're going to live now. You guys can live just fine, but now I'm your king. You're going to need my money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Need my money. You're, you're going to pay me taxes. Um, but here, here you go. This is where you're going to be now. And then some. You know, we're going to move people all around. We're going to shuffle you all up to disrupt you, which is going to strip you of some power. But it's not going to completely take you down, take you out. You know, I'm wondering if it's just that thing that where we looked at this over and over that Israel was just about self and they got caught up in the way of the world. Mm -hmm. And this was a a point just to basically humble them and say, listen, you're not in control. You're going to go and you're going to be taken out of your element. You're not going to gain anything for your country. You're not going to be able to build your storehouses like Hezekiah wanted to show um, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, traveling party, all Israel's riches and everything they had. You're not going to be accumulate wealth anymore. You're going to be under another person for this 70 years to, to humble yourself and to learn your lesson and to know that I'm your God. I don't think it was a, a breaking one like it was with the Egyptians. Well, I would say that with the Egyptians, it was the founding fathers, it was the founding father of the nation that went there. So the, the roots of the nation were actually in Egypt. And mm-hmm. so once once the pharaohs there lost track of Joseph and the value that he had brought to the country, then all they saw was a rapidly expanding nation growing within their borders that needed to be controlled. Plus, God had said in advance that that one was going to be 400 years. This one was Judah, right? This was Jerusalem. How many, was it three different three different captivities that took place? Was that right? Do you guys remember? Yes, three. And didn't, didn't we like add up the numbers and it was like 10,000 some odd people? This is, not, this is not the whole nation of Israel. Right. This is Jerusalem and the elite, right, the nobility that were taken. So this is like a figurehead captivity. This is not a nation wipeout. Yeah. I don't I even see that as the same kind of war. I thought that was the first wave. I thought they Oh, was that is that it? Over. Wasn't there a wave where the the nobility got taken over, the elite of of Israel was taken over first and then other people after that? I I could be okay. wrong. Yeah, and maybe I have it wrong in my head, but I remembered that I remembered that being the total of more than one captivity. But maybe you're right. Maybe that was just the first one. 
to demoralize the country because I remember it saying that they were that they were leaving leaving the land and the cities to the poor who lived around it like they didn't even fuss with the average person right and I I wanted to say and like I said I could be wrong but I thought that was the first wave because they also took over the king and didn't they put his eyes out that was uh wasn't that has a no Zedekiah Zedekiah yeah. put his eyes yeah. out mm-hmm. yeah and Nebuchadnezzar did that yeah yeah right. yeah so I mean, it's not like you know, it's not like the taking over was just kind. It wasn't an invitation. It was definitely, you know, we've talked about the siege, and the siege was was ugly and nasty and gross, and but it wouldn't have necessarily had to have been. But All of, course, of my cravings to eat dove dung left after reading that story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bird pate. But so even though, but though even though it was all, you know, they had to use those kind of tactics to get the job done. I still get the impression that the people weren't being held in contempt, contempt by Nebuchadnezzar. It was just a means to an end. And so now when we have Belshazzar showing that he has seemingly maybe developed some contempt for the people he rules over, he feel he thinks he's high and mighty and and all that and pulls out these these sacred cups from from storage and starts using them to party with that then we get this writing on the wall and God sending a message. <clears throat> He's like an entitled little punk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm a, I'm a little curious how old he was, to be honest with you, because uh, that just seems like the kind of thing that a young person who got, got a little power, got a little authority and position started to abuse it. Maybe. I'm pretty sure humans can come up with that type of power abuse and cockiness at any age. Look at Nebuchadnezzar. Like he was well into his years before he got sent out to the fields to graze for a few years. That's true. But so Daniel does interpret, not just interpret, because the writing doesn't seem to be anything that anybody can read, which is interesting to me. Because maybe what language it was. Like, why couldn't they read that? Yeah, that's interesting to me because you think about, okay. Nebuchadnezzar took over many, many nations. Each one's going to have different languages. They're going to have different writings. Um, I would assume that there would be people who would recognize and be able to speak and read these words uh, if they were in the language of any of those nations that Babylon had taken over. So it really does make me wonder, is like, what is this language that is being given? Um, it makes me, it makes me wonder about the concept of that some people have of speaking in tongues where like, there's this language from heaven that people on earth don't necessarily understand. I'm not saying that that's what this is, but it just makes me wonder, you know, it, it really is a question of what language is this? Why couldn't anybody read it at all? Let alone interpret it. Well, I thought that the words were in Hebrew. And that they were just so cryptic that no one could understand what it meant. Because it essentially oh. says numbered, numbered, uh, let's see. Weighed. Weighed, divided. divided. So it yeah. says numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. And so maybe they, maybe somebody could read that in Hebrew, but they were like, what does that mean? Mm. Okay. Well, I can buy that. I can, I can buy that. Yeah, because... Um, they are definitely just words, but Daniel comes in with like paragraphs for what each thing means. So the words. Okay. okay hang on a second. If we go back to verse eight, 
and this might be a translation thing. Um, now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king oh. its interpretation. Okay, yeah. so maybe it wasn't Hebrew. Or maybe it was a divine blinding. That's possible too. Mm -hmm. To let Daniel do his, do his thing. Yeah. One way or the other, something's going here and nobody <laughs> knows what it is. <laughs> so the words that are written, this is the way Daniel tells him, the words that are written, and we'll see if see how my pronunciation is. The words are, mene, mene, tekel, eupharsin. And Daniel interprets these, meaning mene means God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. So, I mean, that's a long, that's a whole sentence for one word. Um, tekel means, he says, it means you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So I have a parallel Bible that has two translations and two paraphrases side by side, which when I come across things that I wonder what they mean, it helps to look at the other versions to kind of get different scholar, different styles of translations perspective on it. So I'm not a huge fan of the New Living Translation, which is a paraphrase, but it actually spells out the difference between what the words actually mean literally and the interpretation that goes with them. So this is where da God was speaking through Daniel. So mm -hmm. like, like Amy said earlier, mine means numbered. Gotcha. Okay, so mm -hmm. I'll just read this in New Living Translation. Um, mine means numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. So literal interpretation. Mm -hmm. Tikal means weighed. You have been weighed in the balances and have not measured up. Parson means divided. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So at each step, it was literal. And then here's what it means. I, I appreciated that perspective on it because I've often thought, you know, how did Daniel take four words and turn that into all of those elaborate sentences? Yeah, well, and that's why it, it leads me to kind of go along with with Amy's uh, version of that there where, I mean, there's a lot of times if it's something like that, can you read it? Can you make out what the words are, but don't quite know what the words mean? You know, I, I, I can kind of buy that. I'm pulling out my, I'm just pulling out my big giant green Strong's Concordance here to just to look and see uh, how, how these were written in the, um, in the Hebrew. So let me look here real quick. I should have maybe done this before, but I, until now I didn't stop to think that maybe they were Hebrew words because. Um, well, while you're ahead. looking that up, I was just thinking about the fact that we already have a prophecy uh, in Isaiah that told that the Medes and the Persians were going to come. Um, and I, I think that's so interesting because here is, you know, they're living in that time. I'm trying to find it. It's, it's in Isaiah, though. Isaiah, uh, God calls Cyrus his servant. He says that Cyrus will come and release the people. And, uh, and here's Daniel, you know, who's very interested himself in all the prophecies of the Lord. Mm. And uh, here it is. Uh, Isaiah chapter 45 is about the coming of Cyrus. And it calls him the Lord's anointed, which is weird again, because here is a pagan king 
mm-hmm. who's going to bring an act of war, and yet the Bible calls him God's servant. Mm-hmm. You know, but they did the same thing with, with Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, is that that's how God was going to use his, was going to put corrective measures on Israel. And so the same thing when you see the per- Medes and the Persians is that now they're going to be the ones to allow them to go back and start again. Mm-hmm. So I'm yeah, exactly. So I'm looking it up here, and it looks like, like of course, this whole thing was written in Hebrew, but that word "mene," it it seems to indicate that it's a Chaldean word. So, th- I mean, that would incline me to believe that the the language was known. And when we're talking about being able to read it, we're talking more about being able to interpret what it's talking about. Um, oh, interesting. Huh. Because, like, maybe everybody understood what the words were, but everybody's going, what in the world does that mean? I mean, if a hand shows up and starts writing on a wall and just puts what looks to be random words up, and, of course, if you think that you are all that and... You know, you're you're I mean, what king has ever thought that their their kingdom was going to go down, you know, burnt in flames. But um, so that may maybe everybody's just like, what in the world does that mean? You know, don't know. I don't know. But the point is that Daniel was given that interpretation, able to expand on it and explain just what is happening here. Now, he was you know, he was offered. Like you said, the third of the kingdom, and he said no thanks. And and uh, but um, Belshazzar goes ahead and awards him what he promised. Which I, I'm getting the impression here that Belshazzar was just like not terribly worried about anything, because because if your sky comes in and tells you, yeah, that thing that just happened on the wall is telling you that your kingdom is going to end and it's going to be given up. It's going to be uh, given to the Medes and Persians. It almost seems like Belshazzar was just like, oh, okay, great, thanks. Um, you know, and almost what could he do? He's probably in the state of panic at that point from seeing the hand on the wall. Mm-hmm. And then, too, Daniel's like, okay, thanks for the gold chain, and I really don't want to be a third in in line for a country that's going to be taken over. Yeah, <laughs> right. I have no reason to believe this, but I, I kind of feel like just the opposite is true. It's like Belshazzar is having a moment of dignity where he says, okay, you told me the truth. And I I wonder if a lot of people around him didn't tell him the truth. Mm. Uh, And here's someone who's not flattering him, who speaks the truth to him, and he puts the chain on him and everything just like he had promised because for a moment he's like manning up. Mm. That's all. Okay, well, that seems possible. I guess the reason I stick with the the flippancy idea here is because, you know, Tracy was pointing out earlier, Nebuchadnezzar got his aha moment and changed. Uh, Belshazzar gets an aha moment and really doesn't because the text tells us that that very night Belshazzar dies, not just dies. He is killed. Uh, And there's history involved with that, which I'm not totally, I'm not as totally familiar with. So I'll let one of you guys, uh, relay that a bit. I mean, I know, isn't this when uh, a river got diverted and they were able to come in under the gates and yes, the yep. water gates. So somebody, somebody relay that because I'm, I'm not as clear on all that as others people are. 
Well, the Babylonians believed that their city was impenetrable, and the the Medes and the Persians actually had spent considerable time digging under the wall of the city, and they di diverted the river and came under where the river would normally have run under the city, um, and essentially used a waterway already made by the Babylonians to invade the Babylonian city. Mm -hmm. See? That's, that's all I know. Well, yeah. So while, they're, so while they're partying, the enemy's literally coming under their wall. Mm -hmm. And then, like, if you guys, if you guys have ever looked up the size of the walls of Babylon, they weren't going to break those down. They could have sieged that thing for two centuries and those walls wouldn't have come down. Mm -hmm. And they had their own water supply because a river ran directly through the city. But yeah, diverting, so water, diverting the water so and coming through the, the riverbed was amazingly clever and they came through but the they host the historical accounts of that takeover are fascinating if you've never read them you should look them up and read them yeah so they they come in in a way that nobody would have ever expected their party i mean i can't believe that they didn't know that these guys were out there i mean if you're going to have a whole army that's going to be able to come in and take over the city the fact that the king is partying inside is telling me that he wasn't worried about it. He didn't think anything was going to come of it. Um, and they were utterly surprised when the Medes and Persians came up under the wall. And so the arrogance of Belshazzar through all of this, I think, I think is evident. And he held on to that arrogance even after the interpretation of, of what happened on the wall. And... That's why this aha moment wasn't able to, I mean, it sounds like maybe, maybe this would have, could have been an opportunity for him to make some changes, but he simply didn't. He maintained the arrogance and it was a quick, swift judgment on him, but he died know, if, that night. If you ever look at like the pictures of ancient Babylonian, the, the city, how Babylon was built, it was one of the wonders of the world. Um, the waterways were huge. It literally went through like all the city, all the different facets. And and that was like one of the main things that it was like built upon was the waterways that it had through it. So that was huge, mm -hmm. you know, and for nobody to really notice. Or is that saying that maybe, you know, the upper echelon of people like the royalty didn't really care and weren't in touch with what was going on, you know, on the ground? that, okay, the waterways are getting lower or something like that through the building up to this to where all of a sudden in the middle of the night, the water's diverted, it's going another way. So it allows vast number of armies to come through because it wouldn't just been a small elite band. It was going to be a right. lot of people. Mm -hmm. So they like literally marched, you know, they didn't really think of legions until like Rome, but it was a large company of people to take a city, especially mm -hmm. a city of that size. Well, that maybe tells you how detached they were. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, that, that's that's yeah. It's like I was saying, they had to have known that these guys were outside the walls, but they just didn't think that they were going to be able to do anything. Because just like Karen was saying, these walls were crazy strong, and there was no reason that they would think that that they would be able to do this. And so what it was a just an ingenious way of, of taking over that city and getting huge numbers of people in there caught them completely off guard. Cause I don't know how big the waterway was, but if you're going to get enough, if you're going to get enough of an army 
under the wall to come in and take over the city, it tells me that it tells me that Belshazzar wasn't at all. They 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 weren't even geared up for something like this. They weren't geared up for protecting the inside of that wall and apparently didn't care what was going on on the outside of the wall. So Belshazzar is killed that night and we're told told <laughs> we were told that Darius or Darius, I don't know how everybody likes to pronounce that. I've always said Darius, but I've heard also Darius, uh, the Mede, he takes over the kingdom. And uh, we see that passing of of the kingdom of Babylon over into the Medo-Persian Empire. And there went the head of gold. Well, I think that is going to be our time for this week. So we will continue next week with chapter six. Daniel is just so chock full of interesting things that we're going to have we're going to have a lot of uh, good discussions on on uh, different things. Um, and then next week we're going to get into some uh, interesting stuff about about a plot against Daniel. And so um, be looking forward to that. Start reading in Daniel chapter six. We'll continue there next week. We'll see how far we go. Uh, while you are reading that and waiting for us, remember you can reach out to us at attbpodcast at theadventure.org. Look for us on Facebook. Please remember to share this podcast with your friends and family. And make sure that you subscribe to the podcast so that we reach you in your feed each and every week. We look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks for listening.